You're listening to Brave New Space. I'm Robert. I'm Keegan. And we're going to share with you all things new space and beyond. Why we started this podcast. Brave New Space is about sharing insights and perspectives on the business and commerce of all things space to global investors and entrepreneurs. And we want to encourage more investors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers to consider participating in this space renaissance. Today, we're going to talk about failures in the new space sector. So for a little bit of background, how did the new space movement start? What were some of the noteworthy failures? Maybe what made some of the successes different? And what were some of the most systematic bit problems businesses had back then? And how has the industry matured? The trying to find a start date for the new space industry is always fun because there's kind of a hard start date we all more or less stick to, but it's worth mentioning that the private sector has been involved in space since really the start of the space race. I mean, Telstar 1, the first private communication satellite, was also the first communication satellite going all the way back to the early 60s. Yeah, and, and one might have said that even there was a failure there with you know, the president, JFK at the time, who stepped in to prevent private competition. It was really essentially setting up a monopoly when you had the private sector and corporations that were interested in actually getting in into satellite communications, but they couldn't do so because of the federal government. Well, it is worth remembering that the logic behind the space program back then was really night and day to what it was right now. It was much more comparable to kind of how the economy had to be marshaled, rather the entire U.S. economy had to be marshaled during the Second World War for, you know, one singular purpose. So you, you could argue that there was some sense to kind of muscling out private competition, but it most certainly did hamper the development of the private space market as we know today. But we're kind of getting a little off topic here. So let's get back to why and how the new space industry emerged. Generally held that the start date for the new space industry is intimately tied to the end of the Cold War. Because that's when a lot of hardware suddenly became unbusy, shall we say. A lot of assets from the Soviet Union, more than a few assets from the United States, but mostly knowledge and technology transfer that was being made available to the private sector for the first time really emerged at the end of the, of the uh, first Cold War. <laughs> and then you also had high net worth individuals from the technology sectors and entertainment slash media who were just starting to think about taking some of their their earnings and investing them into space-related projects. And this ecosystem absolutely stayed this way until really right up until the crash of 2008. And you could argue that it's still very much in place today. This ecosystem that was dependent on a handful of people with really, really visionary ideas, dependent on a handful of what we would consider super angel investors today. Yeah, and some of those early individuals uh, would probably include um, Jeff Beal, the banker, Paul Allen, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and, and several other individuals. <laughs> Tom Clancy was actually among some of the first significant investors into the new space industry. We'll get back to his part of the story uh, in a little bit. But uh, yeah, the this early phase was originally could best be described as an attempt to create kind of a private NASA. And I don't mean that necessarily in that these were exploration driven goals. Robert, these were really enterprises that had the kind of the culture of a government space program when they first kind of emerged, because we were getting a lot of people who were jumping ship from some of the bigger players to work on these private sector markets. And that had its ups and downs. Yeah, certainly. I mean, they, they, they knew about things around mission assurance 
and probably doing things in, in a relatively expensive way, but really had not seen the breakthroughs that we, that were learned from the software industry transfer yet over to the new space sector, what we're seeing a, a, lot, a lot more frequently today. Absolutely. I mean, you could not imagine a company like SpaceX, Blue Origin, or especially a Planet Labs, a company with that kind of development model oper- coming into being back in from 1991 to about 2000. And to be fair, that was partly due to the fact that that cycle didn't exist in general inside the U.S. economy at the time. So you can't really fault the new space industry for not adapting a way of doing business that was all of about five years old by the time they came into existence in the first place. Yeah, certainly. So, so getting into a couple of examples of maybe where some of the um, some noteworthy, you know, maybe failures that we can per- perhaps learn from. If you go back uh, to the late '90s, I think it was around '99, banking entrepreneur Jeff Beal decided to do an aerospace startup called Beal Aerospace. And his biggest challenge, although he had some technology challenge, was a business challenge. He was competing with NASA. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there was no commercial crew, no commercial cargo. These things did not exist. The irony is that when he, he, he essentially shut it down because he was unable to compete with NASA, SpaceX, which emerged around shortly after Beale folded, SpaceX acquired some assets from Beale Aerospace. And one of uh, their early, SpaceX's early customers and still a customer today is NASA. So there's definitely some irony there. <laughs> irony and also a foreshadowing for just how rampantly incestuous the <laughs> new space industry would be and would continue to be going forward. It is a cliche at this point how often these company, new space companies that either fold or are still in the business trade employees, trade executives, and ultimately trade technology. That's a defining characteristic of this industry all the way to today. Yeah, certainly. Another example that is going to surprise listeners that we've selected is Radio Shack. So back back in 2001, they tried to drum up some Father's Day sales by sending what they call, in quotes, an out-of-this-world gift to a dad on board the space station. It was actually a Russian, a Russian cosmonaut. And they had filled them receiving this special, I guess it was kind of this digital picture frame. And they were hoping to onboard American NASA astronauts. At, well, well, NASA put the, uh, the kabush on that, mm-hmm. and that did not happen. Although they did film the commercial with the Russian, with the Russian cosmonauts. And also it's interesting because... At the time, you know, they didn't, NASA didn't want their logo. They didn't want, they didn't want their astronauts. And let's see, just about that same time, they, um, Radio Shack was also doing a potential lunar program. They were going to, um, essentially try to do a, another media sponsorship with a, a lunar related activity. Um, and that also didn't succeed. And had Radio Shack, you know, maybe just continued, put one intern, one in, an analyst just to continue to follow the new space sector, because this is back in 2000. One, mm. they might have actually been able to get early access to things like the CubeSat market. Because see, this this media promotional activity in the space sector was happening around 2001. Just two years earlier, the CubeSat form factor was was written about in a paper and published in 1999. And I'm not saying that necessarily that satellites would have been the saving grace for Radio Shack, but who knows? It's it seems that there was really a possibility of that maybe maybe Radio Shack could have had something called Cube Shack. <laughs> We could have uh, seen a weird world where Radio Shack might have pivoted entirely into satellites, and today we'd be talking about Starlink brought to you by Radio Shack. So it's 
it is a fascinating thing to see just where a lot of this money came from back in the early days of all this. I mean, for me, the most iconic story for the early days of New Space will always be Rotary Rocket. So for those of you not familiar with this project, this is something that has a bit of a tourist opportunity for most folks. So if you ever find yourself down in Mojave, California, you've gotten lost or by some miracle you've tripped and fell and found yourself at the Mojave Air and Space Port, there is a garden, or rather a park, in the middle of the spaceport itself. If you go there, you'll see a huge rocket. Looks like out of something out of Buck Rogers or Tintin sitting there in the middle of the park. That is a real-life prototype of the rotary rocket manufactured by the Rotary Rocket Corporation. So this was a spaceflight startup founded in about 1999, if I remember correctly. Robert, that sound right to you? Sounds about right. And the founder was an engineer named Gary Hudson. Yes. And uh, by the by, most of the people who were working at Rotary Rocket are still very much active in the industry today. So we will, <laughs> we will not be naming names or trying to ascribe any kind of fault to anyone here. This is just an interesting story that really kind of is emblematic of what the culture of new space was for a long time. So this project had kind of a dream team of engineers on hand. It had a sizable commitment made by, among other people, the author of The Hunt for Red October, Mr. Tom Clancy. And the goal was to find a way to create a single-stage-to-orbit launch vehicle. Now, a single-stage-to-orbit launch vehicle, or SSTO, is basically a rocket that just goes up and comes back down all in one go. The advantage being that it's fully reusable, and you're ultimately going to be able to cut your costs in a big way. The problem is, the only way to make an SSTO is to make it into a flying gas tank, and so you can't really get anything practical into space in the first place. So it's an engineering solution at its core. And Rotary Rocket tried to get around this problem with another engineering solution. They wanted to stick a little helicopter motor at the tip of the spacecraft, and as it was coming back down, instead of having to save or rather carry enough fuel to not only get itself into space, but to land once it got back out on the surface, it would fire up a little helicopter blade and use that to land under mechanical power. They tested the helicopter bl blade portion. They had engine tests. They had what, as far as that you could would consider, would be a working prototype of their launch vehicle, but they were never able to get it into space because the money ended up running out around 2001. And the question hung over everyone's heads for the longest time, well, how and why did Rotary Rocket fail? And from a purely engineering perspective, you'd argue that they didn't. And this was kind of a problem that the new space industry had for a long time. In fact, I'd argue it's a problem that the public space industry had for a long time as well. This obsession with so long as there is an engineering solution, Therefore, the idea is inherently valid and does not require defense. Rotary Rocket's problem was they were focused on building out a completed product before the market that could have used it really existed. Robert, does that sound like a fair assessment to you, this whole notion that the new space industry, when it got started, really wasn't? Certainly. I think there was probably, if you, you mentioned the word customer discovery, that was not in the business jargon of the time or essentially now where investors are expecting to see, you know, who is your customer? What market are you serving? I would be interested to see maybe if they even had any presentation materials from the rotary rocket days. But essentially, yeah, they were they were trying to solve uh, this engineering problem without necessarily rationalized customer base. They were probably also thinking about tourism and, and NASA. But again, you know, we didn't have some of these government commercial partnerships 
tourism was extremely, extremely limited idea for the space sector. Yeah, tourism didn't really become a a legitimized idea for the space industry outside of a handful of very expensive tourist ventures done primarily through government launchers, really until the Ansari X Prize. And that was when the whole notion of tourism being a legitimate market for space really kind of emerged and then kind of de-emerged and then re-emerged again. <laughs> so the Ansari X Prize was, for my mind, that was when new space went from being kind of this kooky sector with a bunch of mad scientist engineers to being something that started to really get mass appeal. It still very much is a kooky sector with a bunch of mad scientist engineers. It's just that we have better publicists <laughs> than we did back then. Yeah. So space sector has never really challenged without gaining attention. I mean, if you put out a, a slick press release or making an announcement, you know, you'll, you'll get some media attention. But that's also been mm. its Achilles heels that for too long, space sector has you know, relied on announcements, you know, predicted deadlines, and in many times they've passed. Let's look at this. The manned suborbital market. The, X, the original X Prize was won in um, October 2004. There you can go back and look at news releases. We're saying, oh, there's suborbital tourism will happen in 2007, 8, 9, and we're in 2019, and it still hasn't happened yet. It's definitely made lots of progress, and, and there's a lot of lessons learned, but it's not, you know, there's definitely, there's places to put your deposit down for it, but it is not an activity that an individual can yet do. But it's, it is building up to where I think where 2020 might actually be the year. Knock on every piece of wood in your house on that one. But remember, those those flights are just uh, quick hops up and back down. That is not point-to-point travel. That does not mean you can go from uh, you know New York to Tokyo. That does not mean you can visit the space station. That is just if you're flying, you will essentially go up several hundred thousand feet, let's say around 100 kilometers above sea level, and then you'll come back down probably at or near where you, you launched. Right. And this has been, this is not something we would consider a failure in the industry, but it's not something that has achieved a success yet. You know, if uh, if Virgin Galactic was not part of the broader Virgin family, you know, a an investor with less resources probably would have walked away by now. But fortunately, they have someone like Richard Branson on hand who is absolutely committed to the project, as far as we can tell, and is seeking markets beyond the tourism market. What's the uh, other division of Virgin Galactic they have now? Uh, yes, Virgin, Virgin Orbit, Orbit, which is seeking to enter the SmallSat market as well. Though that will be interesting to see if that can be achieved, given that SmallSat single satellite launches is an idea that kind of died in the cradle in its own way. It's still sort of floating around out there. You've got companies that are trying to make it work, and the business model that seems to be the way to go is either volume and just really make your launch capacity something that is so high that you could put anything into space at any given time, or to have a degree of reusability so advanced to where you can launch, recover, and launch again very, very rapidly for very, very bespoke payloads. But this is a question of whether or not it still remains to be seen whether or not this market is really got legs, given how many small sat launches are now being done with very, very large payloads of you know dozens, if not hundreds, of satellites going up in a single constellation launch. So we'll come back to Virgin at a later 
discussion, but this is an interesting topic on whether or not small sat single launches versus small sat large constellation launches are going to be the norm going forward, or if there is indeed room for both. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, Keegan. Let's go back in time and talk about Iridium. That is one that probably at least some of our listeners are familiar with. That was a project that was initiated by a team at Motorola. They spent several billion dollars in the mid to late 90s put a their goal of putting a uh, constellation of satellites that would provide telephone access via satellites working with you know so people on boats and remote places the military would potentially have access but it ultimately ended up failing and, and shortly before they went bankrupt they only had several tens of thousands of users in their cost of customer acquisition was ridiculous because of the capex on the project. And essentially, it was just kind of a too big to fail approach. And it was really not, you know, step by step or try to find a min- there was no such thing as a minimum viable product. It was probably a, a maximum, it was probably the opposite, be a maximum, vi- maximum, not so viable product. And during their long development time, I don't think they ever recognized that their, you know, cell phone companies were moving into to certain places that they had hoped to serve and eroded some of that expected market base that they would assume would be waiting for them for their expensive and, and essentially niche service. You can argue that that maximum viable product model was not at all unique to Iridium. That was absolutely the same thing that Rotor Rocket had going in. But to continue on, this problem of niche markets you were talking about, Robert. Yeah. And then once they once the company was acquired out of bankruptcy, it became a relatively profitable company. Although still to this day is a is a niche service for energy operators, you know, certain NGOs that work in remote places military that can use it. So um, it's it's not that it was a, a poor idea. It was just a very expensive idea with maybe mismanaged or not necessarily a well-researched uh, market opportunity. Iridium might end up going down in history as being kind of akin in the same vein as, say, Picture Phone, the old uh, Bell Labs project from uh, back in the 60s and 70s to try to essentially create a proto-internet. They really kind of got out of the gate before the technology was really all that viable. And now one must ask, how viable is Iridium going forward if Starlink can achieve even half of what they promise? Yeah, there was just a recent announcement of, I think, uh, the U.S. military re-upping a contract with Iridium for, I believe it was something slightly north of $700 million. But that is sort of TBD. We'll keep our eyes on that and, you know, talk about some of those constellations in a future episode. All right. So, Robert, at time of recording anyway, this is kind of significant because this is the, I believe, what, seventh anniversary or something like that? For uh, SpaceX just had their anniversary for their very first successful flight of the Falcon 1, the very first rocket they ever built. And what we often forget about that launch vehicle was that SpaceX had three failures before they actually got their first success off the ground. Yeah, and had they not made number four, the company might not have continued forward. Elon Musk and Gwen Shotwell have both been very upfront about that, that the company probably would have had to have closed its doors had you know, flight number four not gone through. The 
plan apparently was to eventually get Falcon 1 off the ground. They were going to transition into what would have been the Falcon 5 rocket, and Falcon 9 was supposed to be way further down the road than what they expected. So despite those failures, they really seem to have given themselves the confidence to have leapfrogged an entire phase in their development. What's that say to you? I mean, what what do you think was the kind of the big lesson that they must have learned from the Falcon 1 that made them so confident to want to just go directly to the Falcon 9? I don't know if this is true or not, but I also I think about if they realized that maybe there wasn't a strong enough or at the time there wasn't a strong enough market for the Falcon 1 which would have been essentially being able to take less mass, things like smaller satellites, and maybe at the time that market was not robust enough or large enough. And, and I kind of wonder if, if they they realized that, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but recognize that maybe there's, they got to go for bigger geosats and the communications market rather than smaller satellites as a, a first entry point. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, that's something I wonder about. Well, it's definitely worth considering because uh, SpaceX, you know, had SpaceX not succeeded with that fourth Falcon 1 launch on in, Oct- in uh, 2008. We'd be talking to the, about them today like, well, what went wrong with SpaceX? They did everything right. They were building, you know, they started out building a small-scale vehicle, and they wanted to very incrementally move their way up to what they considered their end game at the time, which was the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy. And it really shows you that being, that when a company is willing to make that incremental, those incremental steps early in their career... Uh, having multiple vehicle losses is something that is not going to kill you immediately anyway. Those early failures really show how being able to make those incremental steps that a lot of the early space companies didn't make really kind of builds in a degree of survivability that you we didn't really see with, you know, imagine if Rotary Rocket had, you know, had just enough money to where they could have gotten one more flight going and then they lost the vehicle. They would have been you know, dead far earlier in their career than they were even when they, even from as far as they got. It might, it might prove the point that, you know, hardware can be hard and expensive and that it just requires a larger CapEx, not just capital, but maybe time. And many companies, whether they're launch startups or something outside of the space industry, if, if you don't have that cushion, you, um, you'll hit the chasm of death. Absolutely. They're called test flights for a reason, and SpaceX was lucky enough to where they could afford to have those many test flights, those many potential failures, because they did have the kind of capital at the at the start of the gate that made it possible for them to do that. And, you know, Elon Musk brought quite a bit of money to bear, but if they hadn't have gone with the Falcon 1 as part of their development model, they, if they, would have, they probably would have gone out of business just from losing the very first vehicle. So SpaceX offers a very interesting case and in that, you know, we talk this, the title of this episode is, you know, examining failures in spaceflight. And we kind of went over, you know, companies that have, you know, gone under. This is an example of how failures in spaceflight can offer an abject lesson how to survive as a company, even if your vehicle uh, <laughs> ends up being lost, you know, three times. So it's a really good lesson on how the industry was able to move forward by moving towards this more lean development model where they could take the loss a little bit more than they could beforehand. I mean, that's a development model we don't really see in like NASA or any government space programs. And that's kind of the development model that the industry was operating under for a long time. They had to build one thing. It had to work perfectly on the first flight. And if it failed, you failed. And that doesn't really work in business. <laughs> it, it works fine in the government sector where you've got taxpayer money you can fall back on and guaranteed infrastructure under your belt. 
But when you're trying to get a hardware company off the ground, SpaceX's model really shows how you can learn and move forward and adapt relatively quickly. And and it's also worth noting that those three initially, those first three launches by SpaceX were over a two and a half year period. And all of those ended in, in failure. And there's a great quote from Gwen Shotwell, president of SpaceX. It said, you don't learn anything from success, but you'll learn a lot from your failures. So it was, you know, they recognized that uh, early on that this was, you know, going to be a, a difficult path. And I think it's it's important for really any entrepreneur or investor to recognize that space, you do have to factor in time, <laughs> just takes more time, even though space is moving, the sector moves much faster. It is, it is still not purely like maybe other industries. Right. It's taken on many of the traits of the standard high tech, tech development model that we would see in, you know, computer manufacturing, software development, things like that. But this is still an industry that has extreme CapEx costs right out of the gate, even if you're doing everything right. I think probably the one of the leanest examples of a company to operate in space are either small sat providers like Planet Labs and Spire and and for launch providers uh, I, I guess uh, Rocket Lab has got to be be one of the few examples of you know being able to develop a rocket relatively inexpensively but they operate in a very very niche market at the same time and again this it's still a ridiculous amount of capex you got to have if you want to play in this business I can't remember who said it originally I want to say it was an Elon Musk quote but Someone once said, you know, if you want to make a million dollars in the aerospace industry, you have to start with a billion. I mean, it is we're finally starting to get and get away from that. This industry being kind of just known as the business you get into if you're really looking forward to losing money. Hi, listener. My new book, Space is Open for Business, is coming out soon. And I want you to get a sneak preview of it. Head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com for a first look. Thank you for listening to Brave New Space. This is Robert and Keegan. Next episode, we'll be talking about big data and analytics and how those movements created the new nanosat boom. Mm-hmm.